Hello everyone and welcome to OT, What's Your Focus? with me, Farah Money. Today's guest is an interesting one. Today I'll be talking with Dr Ian Marsh, who is the reader in the School of Allied Health at Canterbury Christchurch University, and he is also the university's Suicide Safer Project Lead. Ian teaches mostly on the undergraduate occupational therapy programme and he looks at issues around participation in relation to disability, mental health, service users and people with learning disabilities. Ian is interested in critical approaches to health and social care, particularly as they relate to suicide and suicide prevention. Ian's publications include The Use of History in the Unmaking of Modern Suicide in the Journal of Social History. He has also produced a piece called Queering Suicide, The Problematic Figure of the Suicide Homosexual in Psychiatric Discourse and Queering Paradigms by himself and Peter Lang. In 2007, Ian and Raya Gould developed an educational tool called context of participation, the critical thinking tool. The tool promotes critical consideration of the national, social and individual determinants of health and well-being and is of interest to health and social care, public health, education and disciplines concerned with the interaction of people and society. My reasoning for reaching out to Ian and asking him to offer his knowledge on this episode was to discuss specifically his work on suicide prevention and to discover how his role as an occupational therapist led him to where he is now. So on that point, I wanted to mention at the very start before the episode begins with Ian that although this discussion has not been formulated to evoke any distressing emotions. We do not know listeners' personal stories or circumstances. And I wanted to mention now that if you are personally finding anything upsetting, distressing, or if any of the content will or has the potential to affect you, then the Samaritans are available to talk 24 hours a day. 365 days a year and if you're listening to this and you're based in the UK they can be reached by calling 116 123 and I will post all of the details and links to their website in the show notes today and detail other ways that you can also get in touch with them so yeah I think it's important to mention that because this is a sensitive subject and I didn't want to sidestep it and not include it into the podcast because I think it's actually really important that we as occupational therapists don't shy away from such things and actually maybe try to open ourselves up to them and just find out a little bit more and it is a really interesting talk and episode so I hope you enjoy it. Hello Ian, I'm so happy to welcome you on the podcast today and uh, I hope you're doing good and I wanted to um, say that I actually know Ian as a lecturer from my university at Canterbury Christchurch so that's how I've um, managed to get Ian on the show today but uh, I, I'm really I'm really keen to start off the conversation with you Ian really about asking us to tell you a little bit about yourself and how you came to occupational therapy as a profession. Thanks, Farah. Thanks for inviting me. Um, very good student, by the way, for those that <laughs> haven't taught Farah. It's very good. 
Um, as an OT, it was an interesting journey, actually. I actually went to uni um, originally and studied history. I did economic and social history a whole long time ago. And then, as many people who do kind of degrees like that, I was unemployed for ages afterwards. So I started volunteering in Nottingham at a young disabled unit, what they were called then, and they had OTs there. And I was thinking about what different jobs I could do. And I thought, actually, OT, that's quite a nice job. So I initially went in it thinking I would, I would do something around disability. So I applied, um, got into Derby, got this a long time ago now, and then um, trained there. But I really enjoyed the mental health placements and, and found that much more my thing, really. So um, that is the very short version. <laughs> I got into it. it was quite interesting. It was an interesting time. So there weren't many men OTs at the time. And there'd been a report at the time saying there should be more men. So my year at um, doing OT, there were like um, 12, 13 men or something, which is kind of unheard of. So it's a bit strange. And I don't think they were used to kind of having men in OT training. So it was all a bit unusual. And they weren't used to having men kind of on placement and things. So it, it was a bit strange, but it was a good decision. I like being an OT. Oh, fantastic. So would you think that's changed now, talking about obviously more men getting involved? I mean, we've got a few in our cohort at the moment. I mean, I do feel it is predominantly female dominated, but do you think there's been a bit of a change? It's usually about 10%, isn't it? Maybe a bit more. I don't know how many in, in your cohort, Farah, but there's usually six, seven, eight, maybe out of about 65. So it, it, it's, it's, it's usually steady uh, around that. There's usually more lecturers and, and things, isn't there, with a few male lecturers um so it's changed a little bit but yeah it's still more predominantly kind of female i can't imagine god it'd be, it'd be strange wouldn't it if there were like 30 percent or 50 percent men going into into training but it kind of just you get used to it after a while <laughs> so, so would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself in this in regards to what you're maybe doing now so obviously you do some lecturing at um at christchurch university but where's your kind of occupational therapy role at the moment do you still practice ot or not really i i kind of it's quite an interesting one I, i'm a reader now so i do lots of research and readers like uh researcher really so i still teach on the undergrad program I've just been teaching apprentices which has been really, really interesting about enablers and barriers to participation. That's actually been really interesting because um, they're working and they can't you know, do placements and work in a week. So the, the teaching is slightly different and you have to kind of focus a little bit more on what's going to be useful for them at work. So I still teach mostly around yeah, participation, barriers, enablers, kind of disability studies, critical mental health kind of perspectives. Um, I do loads of research. Most of my research is around suicide and suicide prevention. So I do quite a few sessions for different parts of the university. So like sometimes paramedics, public health, psychology, masters. I, I do sessions on suicide, suicide prevention. I also teach sessions on the research I do. So I'm doing quite a lot of research around um, suicide. So we have projects at the moment with Samaritans around online harms, which is really interesting, really difficult, complicated. We're doing work with National Trust, East Sussex County Council, Highways England. We've done something for Network Rail, all around Suicide So sometimes I teach, you know, tell people about those projects from a research perspective. I also teach research methods around discourse analysis and things. So it's all different strands um, of, of, of teaching, but it tends to cut across. It. And actually what's quite interesting is trying to work out how it, sort of aligns or kind of crosses over and I've been thinking more recently about how to think like an OT in relation to suicide and suicide prevention 
So I've got some ideas and there's some new projects I'm involved in where I think I might be able to do that. But it's kind of, you know, when you've got things in your head that just got to run parallel, and you think it'll be quite interesting if they were a bit closer together or how would they relate? So I've been I've been doing a bit of thinking around that, but I haven't I haven't quite got it, got it I might we might talk about it later, actually. You might help me make yeah, sense of yeah. it. I'll try, I'll try my best. But uh, I was I'm interested to um, talk to you more about what you actually developed with obviously Raya Go in 2007, the critical thinking tool. Um I've used that throughout my training so far really in many um, projects and different uh, assignments that we've had but you know it's it's it seems so simple when you've got it in your hands and you look at it and I will actually um, upload the image of it into the show notes for the listeners to have a look at but what essentially inspired yourself and Raya to come together to formulate the critical thinking tool? Well, we used to share an office, and, and if you ever get a chance to talk to Ray, you absolutely must. She's fantastic. But we used to share an office, and we used to teach. This is a long time, embarrassingly long time ago. We used to teach on someone else's module that was called Psychosocial Aspects of Health, and the the, the, the module had been written by a health psychologist, and it kind of it was a good excuse, but it, it kind of didn't quite align with our thinking as OTs. So um, we started developing our own module, as you do. Um, and thinking about what that might be like and, and we kind of um, where I had some ideas about around social determinants of health but also kind of um, she's a really good OT she, she's a really good OT thinker and thinking about um, participation being kind of central to everything that OTs do and looking at the different factors that might act as barriers and enablers to participation so we were talking about this and we were doing it on kind of bits of paper and talking about the different factors that we could talk about in a module and then between us, we kind of thought, well, and actually, what about if you had like something that you can make that had all those different factors? And then we just started playing around with that. And we worked with Christchurch University to kind of develop it as a, as a, as a kind of um, tool that, that, that you could use. So um, we kind of refined it a, a, a little bit. And uh, say, so if you put the picture up, it's, it's got participation in the middle, then there's lots of factors that go from local kind of social national factors. And Jermaine always talks about having kind of global factors as well, and he's quite right. And you can kind of move it around to see how they align or how they interact with each other. So how someone like media representations of disability might interact with someone's identity in order to either promote or kind of limit participation. So there's different ways you can kind of align it up to help you think. So it's the thinking tool. That's what it's kind of, um, um, I guess, kind of what it does. Um, so yeah, that, that's how that came about with Raz. But Raz now in um, Edinburgh, Edinburgh University teaches up there. So um, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So when you're looking at this tool, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, qualifying in July and incorporating the critical thinking tool into sort of my daily practice. Is there any way you can maybe offer an example of how this could be achieved? So, you know, we've, we've got the tool in front of us. It's, you know, either in our hands physically or, you know, on a, on a screen of some sort. How can we essentially use that in daily practice if we wanted to? What, what I try and think of it is it's, it's a way of thinking like an OT. So it, it's, it kind of enables you, can, can help you think like an OT. And I think when you think like an OT, you're really interested in participation and kind of those barriers and enablers to participation and the relationship to health and wellbeing. So if you can kind of enable someone to participate in kind of activities that are meaningful and purposeful to them, and then that will have a positive effect on health. Um, but sometimes they face barriers. And I think the tool can help identify what some of those barriers might be to participation. And then as an OT, you can think about, okay, what might overcome those barriers? What are those 
those barriers? What, what are they kind of in the environment? Are they something things to do with the person? Are they to do with the occupation itself that you can change? So you can begin to think about okay, what the you know kind of what the what the barriers? But how can we enable that? Is it overcoming barriers, or is it kind of creating a different environment or creating a different you know changing occupation slightly to enable people to participate? And you can think about different settings. I guess if something's if someone's seeing an OT, then usually something's happened to them, um, that, you know, that in, in somewhere or another, maybe an accident or some trauma or things have, you know, been difficult. So that there's usually some adaptation the person's having to make, usually why they see an OT. So you can think about if someone's experienced kind of a, you know, a physical accident and has a kind of impairment, then their life's going to be different than what they can participate in or, or, or what they're able to. So a simple thing is you look around barriers and it's a kind of local environment and you can see, well, actually, if you change the accessibility to the house, you know, then actually that makes it more accessible and that might kind of enable them to participate and still living at home and doing the things they want to do at home. In a, in a more complicated example, you can look about what you can do wider to kind of, again, think, stick with this example of someone who um, is disabled after an accident you can begin to think use it in kind of more of a social model sense about what are the, the kind of broader kind of political environment that kind of, might be kind of um, kind of acting as a, as a barrier to someone how that kind of um, their sense of identity might have, 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 have kind of um, kind of internalized sense of what it is to be disabled and maybe kind of negative kind of representations of disability might be impacting on someone so you can begin to sort of move out a little bit and look at the those kind of wider factors even to the point you can look at kind of you know national factors like national policies and social cultural values and think about as an OT okay in this individual case with the person I'm working with it's kind of hard to kind of influence those but as an OT from a kind of social model social justice perspective you're also thinking about well maybe it's also part of my role to think about challenging using my professional role with some of those social cultural values or to look at changing national policies or even kind of advocated in terms of resources on a more kind of social level around you know kind of health and social care resources the person might might be able to access so it kind of allows you to look at kind of different levels really and, and, and have a more I think kind of complex understanding of barriers and neighbors, but it can be used quite simply as as well. But fundamentally, I think it's about allowing you to think as an OT and looking at kind of kind of participation and what what kind of can hinder that or or, or enable it. And I think you know, I don't know if you think I might be right or wrong with this this trailer thought and line of thinking, but I really draw parallels between the critical thinking tool and the Bronfenbrenner ecology model of looking at those micro and kind of larger macro levels of what impacts things am I right in my thinking with that or not I don't I don't it's quite slightly embarrassing I don't actually know too much about that model, but it sounds like you know, those ecological models it's, it's, yeah. it's I, I, I think it is and I think the other reason for those why those tools are useful is because I think without even being aware of it we're drawn into thinking in quite individualized kind of narrow ways about people like you know we know about the medical model but I think otherwise we often think about just like personal responsibility and personal motivation and I think some of the other OT models kind of individualized quite a lot and as Jaman would say you know they're quite culturally specific around you know this idea of it's all around motivation effort and attitude I don't know if you know Stella Young the disability activist um, but she used to say you know like it's just nonsense to expect that having a positive attitude is going to make a set of stairs into a ramp or you know is it you know smiling at books is going to enable them to be translated into braille you know it's just not you know the attitude you know takes so far but we tend to think in quite individualized ways and, and around you know individual people in sometimes 
Um, so I, th I think any tool that has an ecology or an environmental kind of aspect to it can kind of um, en enable people to think a bit more broadly. Yeah, definitely. So I think I'll, I'll be taking that into um, my practice and definitely keeping it at the forefront of my mind and using that, you know, OT lens to consider all elements that can seem overwhelming sometimes I think especially having just finished a placement you know you're, you're kind of you're so trying to absorb everything coming in from all different angles essentially that you know it's, it's, it's nice I feel to have have that basis of a tool to sort of draw yourself back you know so you don't you know give it some focus in a sense but also keep your mind open but um, I was I was thinking about the lecture that you gave at university quite recently and you mentioned oh, sorry I've, I've mentioned in the introduction that you're the university suicide safety project lead and uh, really stands out that title I was wondering if you might be able to explain this role a little bit more to the listeners. Yeah, I mean, as I did, I, I'm not sure I did mention actually, I mentioned some of the research and teaching but uh, yeah I'm seconded to student support health and wellbeing at Christchurch to run the Suicide Safer Universities project, but it covers um, Canterbury College, um, Kent Uni, University Creative Arts, as well as Christchurch. So it's quite a big project, covers about, all, all in total with those different institutions, is about 50,000 students and quite a few thousand staff as well. And it's been running formally since about October 2017, but I was involved initially um, a bit earlier in 2017. Uh, my boss for this is Maura Helm, who is the director of um, um, student experience at, at Christchurch, but she, she's another OT. So I, I knew her from when she was my head of school a, a while back. And we set the project up because there were, we did have student deaths by, by suicide a, a, around that time. And it was an area that I'd been working in suicide prevention for a long time. So um, we got together and, and uh, Maura helped set up the project and the secondment. So I'm seconded to that about a day and a half a week. So since then, we, we've kind of worked on prevention um, kind of um, activities, just looking at how we talk about suicide within the university and, and, and different ways that we can talk about that, different ways we can make um, help seeking accessible for people, that if people are really struggling, different ways that they can access, make it easier for them to access student support services at different times, looking at our kind of training we do with different staff, so our security staff, academic staff, other professional services staff, and, and, and to kind of train them in kind of suicide awareness. We also work quite a lot at um, changing a little bit about um, how um, student support services manage risk really and, and assess risk. So we've changed, um, we employ actually loads of OTs again, which has been really, really good. Oh, fantastic. So <laughs> Absolutely. So we we we, uh, we poached quite a few from the the NHS. So Lucy Duncan is the interim head of student support now. She's in a, and she's just like the best OT imaginable. She's just so she's done loads of. We've got other OTs involved as well. But so she's done lots of things like um, lots of good OT things. Like she's set up Tuesday Chill, which is a big drop in in the um, library Augustine House. And, and that but some activities some kind of really non-threatening things that people can do so Mandy is another OT does kind of jewelry making or, or, or you know other kind of making stuff there's board games but it's and there's table tennis the students union are in, a union are involved there's quiet spaces for people that find the social interaction a bit intense so she just created this fantastic kind of space in the ground floor of the library as a drop-in but it kind of what it what it does is it kind of really helps people that are maybe 
struggling a bit socially it's also not just for people anyway just to kind of kind of, kind of meet up um you know whether you're struggling socially or not um but it also we have mental health practitioners there or lucy has mental health practitioners there so if someone is really struggling there's spaces they can go and just say actually i'm, I'm really struggling so one of the things around you know the kind of, kind of people in distress sometimes it could be quite hard to make that step to seeking help but I think some of the things that Luz has done and more is kind of supported is around make, making that a bit easier from an OT perspective which which is good and then we, we do we support people if if, the, if there are kind of incidents and, and, and people have struggled we support them after incidents as well so um it's okay we've, we've got some funding for it for a few years which which is good um we have a good external steering group so we have the tim who's the kcc kind of who runs the suicide prevention for kent and medway we have good support from the other universities kind of um, student support services and, and, and academics and um, management the chaplain supported network rail kent police um, samaritans so we have lots of external kind of stakeholders that support it as well so it's been a good project i've benefited a lot from moira's support and lucy duncan's support and stuff so it's got a good core of ot in it as well which is which has been good oh that's really nice to hear and it seems like a a super interesting and yet dynamic and diverse role as well so could you tell us what you enjoy about your role and possibly potentially there's got to be some challenges as well so have you got both sides of that story sometimes it's a bit of a squeeze where um I, you, you probably people get fed up of academics learning about how busy they are but it can be really quite busy and i do work part-time only work um um three and a half days a week um so it does get a bit stretch i actually enjoy um as a new students i've actually really enjoyed the teaching recently with the apprentices and stuff um i enjoy doing talking about some of the research you're doing because it's actually quite interesting well, i think it's interesting um the suicide safe has helped me think a bit more strategically and, and about a project management kind of perspective um so it's probably given me a few, some different skills as well um they're all interesting what's actually quite nice is i, I think if you just do one thing like undergrad teaching or something then that can kind of you'd end up doing an awful lot of that all the time and it you know which is grand but i think the different roles so i, I also work with different people so the suicide safer project lets me work with different people in the university but also different people externally the research lets me work with people from different universities um as kind of um, colleagues and then the undergrad you get to meet students especially in lockdown I mean you know, crikey new people to talk to it's actually quite a tree isn't it like you know actually <laughs> having different different um, people to you know anyone is is quite nice to, to to get to chat to so yeah it's grand it's grand so as an occupational therapist which is obviously what you're you are trained in your background how did you come to specialize in suicidology because that's really niche you know I've I've done podcasts where I've spoken to people and said you know there's this 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 whole kind of specialist versus generic debate that bounces around you know are, are OTs becoming more generic is you know and I'm thinking actually I've never met or spoken to anybody as an OT really that specializes in suicidology so how did you manage to fall into that that little niche area I could do it again it's a long version a short version I'll say the short version because it's, it's probably easier was I was working as an OT in mental health and, and, I, and I found the approach to be quite medicalized and again quite individualized and there was also something that was a bit more difficult is that, is that I was um, sharing a house with a couple and uh, the, the um, friend I was sharing a house with, he's, he's 
brother died by suicide, but he was also known to the team where I was working. And I was quite shocked by it, actually, and I'm quite troubled um, by the event, absolutely, the effect on my friend, but, but also that how we as a team had kind of thought about, how we thought about suicide and, and, and what we kind of did as a, as a consequence. So it, it got me kind of thinking, and I had an opportunity to do some postgraduate study. I've done a master's degree in counselling psychology at City University. And part of my research for that master's has been around the effect of uh, suicide on mental health professionals. And then um, I got an opportunity to do a PhD and I really wanted to know why we thought about suicide in the way we did. So it wasn't directly OT related, but it was a critical, I did develop a kind of critical perspective or read kind of critical perspectives that wasn't outside OT, if you, if you see what I mean. So it, in, a, in a way, like I was talking about the critical thinking tool earlier about this kind of a medical way of thinking that's quite individualized and, and it's the same as suicide, I, I think. And, and even if you think about suicide and suicide prevention from a social model sort of perspective, or even from a critical thinking tool perspective, you can see there's actually lots of wider factors, wider contexts that kind of impact on someone ending up experiencing that, that, that kind of distress or that kind of desire to die. So what I was interested in, I was gonna say this was a short version, turning into a longer version. What I was actually interested in was that kind of style of thought really, that how we came to think about it in such individualized ways. And if we thought about it differently, what would that look like? So I've been really, really lucky to published stuff from my PhD, but it's got me in contact with lots of really interesting thinkers, very creative thinkers all around the world. So this is Critical Suicide Studies Network. Um, that, that kind of I'm part of and so there's lots of kind of people that work in that from a lived experience perspective but also from social justice perspectives you know including you know people with lived experience as well um, people that are, are kind of um, quite politically aware people that have different professional backgrounds like anthropologists or um, social psychologist, uh, child and youth, Jennifer White and Canada's child and youth care worker, um, professional. So, you know, there, there, there's all these different perspectives. So we try to develop ways of thinking about suicide to support people that aren't kind of medicalized and don't rely on kind of psychiatric diagnoses and rely on kind of um, just thinking that someone has a desire to die just because there's something gone wrong with their, their brain or because they've got a mental illness. So it, it kind of challenges some of those assumptions around suicide and suicide prevention. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic answer. And I like the idea of challenging the assumptions. And it leads nicely into the next question where you um, actually co-wrote Suicide and Social Justice, New Perspectives on Politics of Suicide and Suicide Prevention with Mark Button. And uh, you actually explore the concept of a social justice approach to suicide. And uh, it's just a very interesting idea to me. And it, it stood out. And I, I, you know, I wondered if you'd tell us a bit more about how this concept maybe differs from others. So looking to understand and prevent suicide rather than essentially, like you was just saying, attach um, a very medical or preset determinant to that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. And, and that was an edited book. And Mark was fantastic to work with. He's a political scientist and he'd written a, a, a fantastic paper which um, talked about suicide as a, as a social justice issue um, and understanding there's a political dimension to suicide. And this is some of Mark's work, but looks at how um, He's done loads of work, but, but part of it is looking at how different political setups, even different policies, and he's American, 
um, he's in Nebraska now, he, he was in Utah. Um, how different states in America with things like gun laws and things like uh, LGBTQ plus um, legislation, how um, um, policies relating to kind of marginalization of different minority groups, you know, around, you know, race and disability, say, even um, around um, deprivation, you, you can begin to map that there's a relationship between those indices of kind of marginalization and deprivation, if you like, and rates of suicide. Um, so it's good empirical evidence that actually suicide isn't evenly distributed. You know, the people at greatest risk of suicide are those that are marginalized by society. So that is a political issue that, that you know, undoubtedly there's <laughs> a social justice political issue. However, part of the problem is, as I was saying earlier, that things get framed in terms of mental illness and kind of the assessment and kind of diagnosis and treatment of mental illness as a way of preventing suicide. And I think it's kind of stared us in the face for a, a long time. There's lots of other people that have done some really good work on this year, China Mills and Jennifer White, who I mentioned, Johnny Morris, Rob Coburn, America, Katrina Javasid, loads China Mills in this country, um, all, all kind of have worked on, on, on this kind of social justice um, perspective. Um, and, and so we collected, um, uh, asked people to write, you know, from their research on this perspective. So that's the, 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 the chapter in Ghana as well. So there were lots of contributors for, from all over the world, all kind of looking at how suicide could be framed and should be framed as a, as a social justice um, kind of issue. Um, so it's a collection of, of, of different people's kind of perspectives and hopefully it's a start of a conversation and, and, a, and a way of kind of giving a, a kind of framework to that way of thinking for other people. But it's not the end of the story, you know, that, that I think other people could challenge that way of looking at it or develop it. Um, um, so it, it, it's kind of, I think when you write, you kind of hope it's part of a conversation. You either kind of try and steer a conversation or open a conversation with people. So um, yeah, you just kind of write, you publish something and you kind of, uh, you know, hope that people engage with it in, in some way. So it's kind of, my thinking is it's kind of a lot of people's works and it's kind of out there and it's, you know, people can engage with it in different ways and, and take it up. What's quite nice having done the critical suicide studies kind of network for a, a while is that, you know, you get, researchers doing masters and PhDs are kind of interested in the ideas and you think okay that's really good because they're going to go on and do more research and draw on their own ideas and learn, you know and, and share their own ideas and, and then that's quite a nice process to see so it's hopefully it's part of a broader conversation. Oh absolutely and it, it opened up four processes in my own minds where I was thinking about is there a way that occupational therapists can work to incorporate suicide prevention techniques in their practice and I don't necessarily think it is just categorised to mental health, if, if I'm honest with you. I mean, there's a lot of occupational therapists that work in mental health. And of course, it is, you know, it's probably an indispensable piece of training for them. But I'm thinking of those who might be maybe naturally working with people that are considered high risk, but maybe not always. So is there a way that you think OTs can incorporate suicide prevention techniques? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think, from, again, two ways. One is just thinking through what it means to be an OT in relation to suicide risk. And that sounds like a simple question. It's actually quite difficult, I, I think. I think OTs are often positioned within organisations to do the right thing. And there's lots of threats around health professionals as, as well, sometimes about fear of 
been held accountable and criticised. Um, and, and I think that's always around with, with, with suicide risk. And so sometimes our practice as OTs is quite constrained by those kind of external factors. And so, like I know OTs that work in crisis teams and mental health, but like you say, more, 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 more broadly. And I'll come on to your question about the kind of um, uh, more broad OT stuff in a minute. But I think wherever you work, there's sometimes there's this kind of an expected right way to do it and a fear that if you get it wrong, you'd be criticised and held to account. So that's definitely a factor. But I think, you know, again, thinking through what it, what it is to think like an OT and thinking about participation of barriers and labourers, I think that might open up some ways of thinking about why some people end up feeling you know a, a sense of despair and having a desire to die wanting to die and I think you can think about it in different ways one is in terms of what you can do as an OT to kind of change that and, and kind of enable participation in different kind of ways of thinking and different kind of activities and, and, and look to kind of change the experience someone has of the world and themselves and other people through you know our OT interventions that could have a preventative effect um, prevention is an interesting idea that's another complicated idea um probably haven't got time to go into but you know like that, that kind of life enhancing interventions that OTs do rather than a kind of the pathologizing kind of deficit kind of ways of thinking I, I think is, is good certainly if you look at men when young men talk about what kind of helps them into when they're feeling kind of you know um, a degree of distress or in crisis they talk about wanting to do stuff they, they don't always talk about wanting to sit in a room and talk about it they talk about wanting to do stuff with other people and gradually build up trust and 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 then gradually over time kind of share things and talk about it but it's mostly the doing it's mostly the activities kind of meaningful activities there's some really good stuff like men's sheds the kind of spaces where men can kind of make stuff together and do stuff together and actually you know it's not just men but you know lots of men talk about that as kind of really helping them so you know sometimes the main models around mental health and more broadly is you, you kind of ask about what's wrong with someone they tell you the problems and then you try and kind of manage the level of risk and things but actually an OT perspective I think opens up both in terms of thinking about what you know is life enhancing if you like but also in terms of interventions that are, that, that, that are kind of aren't that are, that are kind of you know um, uh, doing rather than thinking the other side of it again I haven't really quite thought through yet it's, it's just understanding someone's kind of a process and planning if someone puts into uh, thinking about ending their life almost as an occupation and, and, and thinking about a kind of analysis or even using the kind of POP model understanding that relationship between the kind of environment the person and an occupation in terms of someone's thinking where they're, they're, they're kind of seeing ending their life as a kind of meaningful the most meaningful and purpose thing purposeful thing in their life not to enable that but to engage with that as an idea and, and look at kind of what um, what might be kind of uh, other options available and looking at what kind of barriers but I haven't quite got that thought that through yet. Oh, that, that's really interested. That's that's really piqued and interesting. The suicide as an occupation, as in, you know, that that becomes your sole focus because it's all consuming. You know, I I think that's that's a fascinating angle to take. Yeah, and, and it ties in with the research we've done, and there's, there's a kind of you know interviews with people that survived suicide attempts. Lots of online ethnography looking about how people talk about suicide online. And you do get this sense. We wrote something recently as part of the project around processes and planning involved in a suicide attempt on the railways. And, and when, when you look at what people say, it, it's kind of has that real sense of focus and um, that, 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 that kind of, um, that it's a meaningful act for some people. It's really difficult because it's easy to upset people around this. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily the right way to think about it or the only way to think about it. 
but it kind of shines through a little bit that, that people do give that kind of focus to um, when they're feeling like that. Um, and the other thing is, is that just kind of analysis that there's another research uh, involved with, with the railways is, is looking at kind of case reports after deaths. And I think they're really interesting in that relationship between kind of the environment the occupation if you like and the person and I think that opens up some possibilities for analysis but it's a really difficult area and I'm being slightly cautious about what I say because it's 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 kind of you know it's such a sense you know quite rightly it, it, it touches on personal issues for lots of people so you kind of have to, have to you know think it through quite carefully but I try and think it through with people with lived experience and people bereaved by suicide and people have survived attempts and things so we we usually work with kind of groups where, where you kind of try and think it through together but it's, mm -hmm. it's not always easy and, and I was thinking about you know as social media becomes a more dominant feature in so many people's lives as well as you know online gaming and general internet use, I was wondering, you know, has this had any effect on suicide rates? You know, I, I've not had a chance to look into statistics as such as it's, um, you know, it's got to be so broad, there's got to be a lot of research happening in this area at the moment, surely. But, you know, what, what support is online for people who may be at risk of things like cyberbullying that could lead to suicide attempts? You know, is it as simple as people can Google and, you know, do you feel social media has had an impact on suicide rates. Yeah, and it's really complicated. I said the other stuff is complicated. I think this is really complicated. We're doing a project, Anna Labis is leading it from the University of, of Birmingham, and it's with Rachel Winters at Birmingham, she does fantastic online ethnography. Lisa Mazzano is a Middlesex, does fantastic work around suicide prevention. So there's the four of us, and it's about around online harms. So it's looking at what's helpful or harmful in the online environment. And crikey, it, it's really complicated. Um, and, it, and it's really hard to generalize, but there's absolutely opportunities for help online. But there's also areas um, that are potentially harmful as well. But mapping what those are and for whom is, is, is difficult. So for some people at some times, you know, certain um, sites or certain kind of discussion forums or even kind of Twitter hashtags that people can be drawn to and they can get a sense of community from those. So it might be around self-harm, it might be around suicide, it might be general kind of mental health um, kind of support. And then people share experiences and you get this kind of what the researcher calls kind of communities of affirmation where people feel they belong and they have a sense of belonging that they don't get, you know, outside in, I don't even know what it's people call it in real world or you know the non-online kind of world that you know they don't get that sense of kind of community might feel quite isolated so online spaces can provide a sense of community and belonging and that seems to be a, a really important thing but also you know when people are sharing images of self-harm or discussing suicide methods you start worrying about okay for some people that might be something that's kind of they find helpful but for other people it might be harmful and you certainly think about children accessing that material and then you think about okay if the online environment does include potential harms what sort of mediating factors can we put in to kind of mitigate that harm so do we try and offer pathways to more helpful like you're talking about you know kind of um um, helpline kind of numbers and things do we block content and what effect would that have so these are the questions we're looking at and there's no easy answers one of the things we're doing is, is um, Lisa and I talked about earlier and Rachel they're developing a, 
an, a survey so, so we can ask people um, what their experiences are on, online to try and find out a little bit more about what those experiences are like and what's helpful and what's harmful. But maybe it's not even helpful. It's been helpful to think about helpful and harmful. Maybe we need other ways of thinking about it. It, you know, it, it, it kind of gets quite polarised quite quickly. Lots of people want to shut down sites on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook to kind of ban certain content. Um, but then again, there's consequences of that. If people are using certain sites as sources of support, there's consequences to, to banning. Um, do you kind of have kind of shutters that come down on some content with helpline numbers like Samaritan's kind of helpline numbers on it. Um, is that a useful thing? So that's what the survey is for. And I should say that research is funded by Samaritan's, so they're really interested in, in what might be helpful or harmful. So, so we're working with them to try and work all this out. Oh, that's great to know that there's actively stuff going on behind the scenes. And I, I imagine that's only going to be continuous because it's always going to develop and change and trying to find that middle ground, that balance between, you know, I, I think that's really a, a perfect analogy of helpful and harmful because it really is a balance between the two. And what do you find, Tara? I mean, what, I mean, what was your experience of you and the people, because you're much younger than me, but like, what's your experience? Is it content you come across? Is it content that you kind of... You know, do, do you stumble? This is one of the other things. You know, do you stumble across content like that, or do you actively seek it? Can it be even you know, friends you know or people you've worked with on placement? Is is that something that's come up, or do you think it's still quite hidden or personal? Uh, well, personally, for me, I've I've personally never come across any content where I've either felt uncomfortable or you know been encouraged to click on further. But I do know that the um, you know the hashtag is real, hashtagging everything and you know tagging people generally and you know on there's an online twitter uh, twitter community within occupational therapy which i've mentioned in a previous podcast where it's really supportive you know you can go on there and you can ask a question and i know that's you know i'm not relating that to suicide in any shape or form but you know it's that concept of it being helpful and it being harmful because you know um i mentioned in i charted my placement diaries over four episodes and in my final episode I actually did sort of, I suppose, a real life reflection of I was very much, you know, my placement's been great. I've had a great practice educator. But actually, it wasn't until I saw a tweet and somebody said, you know, feeling really anxious. Everyone's posting they've got their first OT roles. Everyone's saying they've had a fantastic placement. I haven't. And I think actually, yeah, even you having your own sort of um, celebrating your own wins can, without you realising, have an impact on somebody who's in a different position or place to you. So it's acknowledging yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really good example because I, I think in some of the research shows that that kind of constant comparison and, and, and that kind of how people present themselves online can be, you know, people can present themselves as, as, as kind of maybe happier or more kind of, you know, it's less complicated than they actually are. But other people seeing that can sometimes find that quite, quite, quite challenging. So there's research that around kind of effects on mood and, and effects on self-esteem and it's that kind of constant um, comparison. And I think that's why some of those more kind of distinct kind of online communities where people can share just how much they're struggling and, and, and how bad they feel can have that that kind of can create a supportive community but then it's quite difficult if that's you know comes to dominate in someone's life or that's their only source and it, and it has that kind of you know the 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 kind of the reason for the community is around self-harm or is around you know um um uh, that are feeling very bad that then you, you kind of wonder over time what, what effect that might have but yeah no it's, it's just 
complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 certainly something that must require much unpicking and uh, and and fathoming, you know, fathoming out and you know you and doing doing the right thing. It's see, I, I feel that's a huge amount of pressure. I'm not sure I'd I'd uh, I'd like that position, Ian. <laughs> No, I rely on an awful lot on the people I'm working with and I learn an awful lot from them. I, I actually have quite a niche role and it's around discourse analysis and around the relationship between language and and, and kind of prevention and stuff or, or suicide. So sometimes I can just fall back on what I know and the kind of analysis that I do. Um, and I'm kind of slightly in awe of the people I'm working with because I think, blimey, that's kind of you're very, very clever people that know an awful lot. And also you can design surveys and design interviews and, and, and kind of do kind of different sort of ethnographic work. And I'm thinking, great, that's very good. So I have a couple of, after this actually, with a couple of meetings with Samaritans and the research group. So um, it, it, it is challenging. I find, I find it the hardest, pretty much one of the hardest things, just that the whole online harms and um, um, trying to work through it. But yeah, no, it's a good team. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, I had uh, my original question here was going to be are trainee or student occupational therapists in the UK currently trained in suicide awareness and prevention? Because I know at our university, we're very lucky. We've, we've got you there as a lecturer and we've had some fantastic um, lectures um, over both. I remember the second and third year. Um, and I was thinking, is this an additional or is it an optional element of other universities training programs? And then I come across an American article from February 2020, um, which did offer me uh, answer to this for, for the states. And that was out of 134 OT students that were surveyed, only 5.2% of them correctly answered four items about youth suicide facts and only 32% reported they'd had received suicide-focused education. So, you know, that, that's well under half of the cohort. So do you feel personally, being in this niche area, having an OT background, that actually all occupational therapy students should have suicide-focused training, or do you not think it needs to be a core element of the course? I think it's really interesting, and I don't know, really. I, 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 I... I think the sessions we do with students like you are, are, are kind of really interesting because I think it's there as an issue. It's it's there on place, like you say, in mental health, but also more broadly. So I think it's around and it is something that um, isn't neutral. You know, it, it's something that does stir up feelings and kind of concerns or kind of anxieties in people. Sometimes, sometimes it's such personal issues, but sometimes it's a concern about working professionally and ha having to... To, to kind of um, you know work around suicide, so I, I think just an opportunity to kind of have to share some of those that kind of thinking amongst ourselves can be useful. Any sort of student, really, I think it's good to know a bit about suicide. Some of the kind of facts and figures, if you like, what, what kind of research suggests, and some understanding of, of of what the kind of people's vulnerabilities might be. A little bit of permission to be kind of compassionate and caring around people that are experiencing kind of suicidal thoughts, and to kind of have that as the main focus of, of the interventions. You know, the work that you do, I think that's useful. Um, I, I guess on placement, you, you get taught um, different, you know, we kind of see or, or engage with kind of different placements way of, of, of kind of engaging with, with um, issues of suicide. Short answer, I think probably yes, actually reflecting on it now that, that like, as I say, the opportunity to learn a bit plus reflect on and, and, and kind of ask questions is probably useful. Um, it's usually a session that goes fairly quickly, you know, it's, it's kind of people 
tend to want to talk about it. I did one for the first years the other day for those that couldn't go on placement and they were really lively. They, they were really kind of engaged about it and it touches on lots of different issues in the world as well as people's lives. So it, it tends to be something that people are interested in. And, um, yeah, so I think probably yes. It's probably oh, the straightest answer. The straightest <laughs> answer I've given all afternoon. <laughs> I think as well, just, uh, you know, having done these sessions I found them so beneficial and I know you know from others that I spoke to afterwards you know your sessions really stood out as um having real life meaning in a way I suppose a lot of the um, stuff you sometimes taught doesn't really necessarily slot into place until you're in that practical element of being on placement but for your session you could start to actually decipher it a bit more immediately without needing that placement context. So yeah, I, 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 I feel it should be myself, but you know, who knows, it might become a core part of it as we go along. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I just to say, I know I did not take credit for that. I just think give, if you give anyone the opportunity to talk about something that isn't often talked about, that is part of your work and people will contribute and, and the sessions are actually quite easy to run because people do contribute their own reflections and experiences and, and, and thoughts. So yeah, just, just that opportunity is usually um, people take that opportunity and, and, and um, you know, run with it in, in a good way, I think. Definitely. And uh, to wrap up today, although that's gone so quickly, I can't believe it. Um, I always ask if um, my guests can offer a recommendation of a book, a film, article or any sort of website or media, really, that you think is worth knowing about or catching up on at the moment. So we've had all sorts. We've had Netflix. We've had music recommendations. We've had articles, you know. So, yeah, what I'm interested to know what you're going to recommend today. <laughs> I've been thinking about this, like Desert Island, this, but I was thinking there's two, there's two films, I'm going to stick with films, two films, and they're a little bit niche, but I think they both have really interesting, they're really interesting, I'd say mental health kind of reduces it, you know, they've got men, mental health kind of aspects, but it kind of reduces it, and they're, they're much more than that, but they're two of my, they're two my, they're my two favourite films, one is called Three Colours Blue, it's a French film and it's about death and, and kind of grief and it sounds terrible but it's the most profoundly moving film um, along with the other one I'm going to mention that I've ever seen. It's got Juliette Binoche in it and um, Three Colours Blue. It's just fantastic. It's just the most beautiful film. Um, I any spoilers people can look it up and the other one is Fearless not the um, martial arts one but it's a film um, uh, with Jeff Bridges in and it's about um, someone who survives a plane crash Typical for me that they don't sound the most uh, upbeat or inspiring. <laughs> but they are, they are upbeat and inspiring. They're fantastic. And Fearless is, is, is about this guy, yeah, who, who's about, and then feels invulnerable afterwards. So it's, you could say the Fearless one's about trauma and, and kind of surviving trauma, but in a fantastic way. And then uh, Three Colors Blue is about surviving um, bereavement and, and, and grief, but they're way, they're way better than I described them. They're fantastic films. Absolutely. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and I've never I've not seen either of those so they can go on my list because my it, over lockdown my list's been shrinking rapidly because you sort of you're, you're flying through everything aren't you because you can't go out and have a meal or glass of wine oh, with yeah. anyone and you know so um, it's become a become a core part so yeah neither of those I've seen so uh, thank you for well, the recommendation what I would say what I would say is is they need they're kind of because they're, they're like um you need a bit of time with them and, and you need a bit of patience with them I, I think they're not you know they're, they're kind of they're good films because they're quite 
moving I, I think they're moving if you get immersed in them now I watch loads of stuff that is just you know flick through on Netflix and stuff and but I, I, I think they had a really big impact on me when I when I when I saw them um I'm being a bit defensive now saying oh you know just be going like, you have to just give it a bit of time to watch you know I'm just thinking people don't look and go oh, this is boring after about five minutes I'm sure people wouldn't but they're, they're worth they're worth giving yourself a bit of space and time to immerse it people don't like them that's fine but I think they're good. So are they are they a bit of a slow burn then? They're a slow burn, but you've got to stick with it to get the core. Completely. Fearless is easier to watch. Fearless is more accessible. But it's, it's probably a couple of hours, probably less than that, actually, about 40 or something like that. And Jeff Bridges is brilliant in it and he, he, he carries that one. Oh, it's just a fantastic film. Three Colours Blue is probably near about two and a half hours and it's French. It's got subtitles. Uh, but Julia Binoche is, is brilliant, but it's just beautiful. It's beautifully shot. It's the it's part of a trilogy. There's three colours white, three colours red, and three colours blue. And it's about the French flag, which is about liberty, fraternity, equality. So each of the films, and it's made by a Polish filmmaker called um, Krzyslawski, can't pronounce his name properly. So blue is about liberty. So this is a woman who loses her husband and daughter in a car accident that she's in. And the idea, which is explored in a really interesting way, that there's a kind of, this this trauma and there's this grief but it's also around liberty the fact she no longer has any ties whatsoever in the world so it kind of follows her and it's just beautifully shot it's all these different blue kind of colors and and, and, and things and what she does over the next year basically but it's not maudlin it, it's kind of just profoundly <laughs> good film really um but anyway too many oh, spoilers fantastic. and i'm trying to set it i'm trying to set it too much i like i want people to like it and if they don't <laughs> but it doesn't matter if people don't like it well, so for the listeners that do watch these, you've got to get in touch with me now that you've had that fantastic recommendation and I will pass your comments on to Ian via email afterwards. So <laughs> we'll start a poll. Line of Duty. I should have just said watch Line of Duty or something. It's much <laughs> no, they're great recommendations. And thank you so much for speaking with me today, Ian. I've learned so much and I'm, I'm sure that others are going to learn a lot too and find it as interesting as I have to speak to you and, you know, glean some more information on um, an area that isn't always so easily or often spoke about within occupational therapy. So thank you for your time. No, thank you, Farah. It's a real pleasure. No, thank you for inviting me. So um, excellent. And good luck with the rest of your course. Thank you very much. How great was Ian as part of that episode? He clearly has such a great in-depth level of knowledge and expertise in this area. And I know I said at the beginning it's a little bit of a sensitive subject and it can be difficult to approach, but I feel that I definitely feel a better understanding around this and doesn't necessarily have to be something we as occupational therapists feel we might have to not necessarily sidestep but feel anxious or worried about. I do think if there's an opportunity to just learn a little bit more and expand our own knowledge on that, it, it does all help and I feel like Ian just presented himself and what he knew in a really clear and practical way and uh, I appreciate that so thank you for coming on the show again Ian and unfortunately I've been unable to attach the critical thinking tool into the show notes sorry technical issue I'm sure you won't be surprised um, due to when I often let you know my little technical hardships I come across but if, it, if it's possible I will do it but right now it's proving a bit of a tricky thing but you can google it quite easily and look up um, Raya and Ian's work 
around the critical thinking tool. So I recommend it. It's worth it's worth your time to look into and find a little bit more out about if you can. I also wanted to take the opportunity at the end of this podcast episode to promote the fact that I'm sure there's many of you out there that listen to numerous podcasts and different occupational therapy ones. And Kwaku from the OT and Chill podcast, as well as myself, are going to actually be presenting at the Royal College of Occupational Therapy Annual Conference this year. What we're going to be presenting to you is titled Podcast Pedagogy, Sharing Teaching and Learning Through the Digital Space. And our slot will be from 5pm till 5.30 on Thursday, the 1st of July. We're both really looking forward to it. We're hoping to make it fun and engaging and it'll be quite nice maybe for you to see us for once because you listen to us and you can hear us but we're going to be there in real life person virtually obviously and we'd like as many of you as possible to join us if you want to you don't have to but yeah if you're around and you think that sounds interesting we're going to be covering a whole range of stuff from podcasters and occupation through to looking at things like can you know listening to a podcast actually count as cpd so if you want to be there it's 5 till 5.30 and yeah, I hope you all have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you soon.